Welcome back to the Comfy Chairs. I'm Kate, and today's conversation is a deep dive into overcoming imposter syndrome. We've talked about this in the Comfy Chairs before, and my guest today has spent the last few years developing a framework and tools that are actionable and practical for anyone fighting the feeling of being an imposter. Please have a seat, and let's start the conversation. But I'm very happy to have my first virtual guest in the comfy chairs today and kind of an extra fun thing. Her name is also Kate and I'm really thrilled to have her here. Um, I met Kate through an online networking group. I've been very excited and impressed about the work that she's doing around resiliency, overcoming imposter syndrome, all the stuff that at least I uh, feel like I struggle with on a regular basis. So Kate, I'm going to stop talking for a bit. I would love to have you introduce yourself. Um, tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing this work. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's really, really exciting for me um, to get to talk about the things that I am so passionate about. So I am a very non-traditional healthcare provider. Yes. I have a background in education. So that's where I started. Um, and after teaching high school for a few years, I went back, did my doctorate in pharmacy. And then after residency, I pursued a job um, in a clinic setting where I could be interacting with patients um, on a regular basis, which is what I do now as my you know, full-time job. Here um, in the setting that I'm at, I take learners on rotation with me on a regular basis. And so I have tons of interactions with students and residents, and I really have seen that there's so much that we can do better for mm -hmm. our learners. And so mm -hmm. that's part of the passion behind my work. Um, I know that I have gone through phases in my life where I was burned out or I didn't feel like the environment was very safe from like a psychological standpoint. Mm. I have been in situations where I felt like a total imposter and felt like a fraud um, because yeah. maybe I didn't do some of the same training that some of the other people um, have done. I am slightly um, non-traditional from the sense that a lot of pharmacists do multiple years of residency and I'd only done one. Okay. And so because I did one year, not two, there was definitely that dynamic of feeling like other people didn't think I was good enough. Mm. Yeah. That is an environment that is just like ripe for constantly doubting yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's that, is that personal experience? What kind of led you to drilling down into how do I get over this inner critic? That was a lot of it. Um, the other piece of it was being a mom in the middle of all of it. Um, so in 2020, about a month before the world shut down, I started experiencing postpartum anxiety, mm -hmm. um, which is something that people don't talk about much. You hear about postpartum depression, mm -hmm. but not the anxiety. And so I didn't know anybody that had ever been in the situation I was in where I was constantly feeling anxious related to 
being a mom. And so when I did return to work, which was about six weeks after that, I really felt conflicted because I wasn't sure that I could be a good pharmacist and a good mom. Anxiety is so insidious because you can function with it in a way that depression brings more hurdles. And I think too, realizing that I had risk factors for it Mm. made me feel like less of a failure having another child already having gone through a pregnancy loss or an infant loss before is a risk factor. And, and then the lack of sleep obviously plays a big role. And that's a a cyclical thing. If you lose sleep, you're more Mm -hmm. likely to feel anxious and then your anxiety makes you not want to sleep. Yep. So I want to, um, not pause exactly, but take a moment to define our terms you know, when we talk about imposter syndrome, inner critics, everybody brings their own understanding of those. But for your work, how are you defining that? So when I talk about imposter syndrome, I tend to use the basic definition of feeling like you're a fraud or a fake in your own life. When I talk about the inner critic, I think back to that voice inside that reminds you that you're not enough. Those are the two big definitions that I work off of. Um, And obviously both of them are more complex than that. Imposter syndrome is definitely more of a long standing thing. It's a continuous prevalent experience versus the inner critic may show up here and there and not be there all the time. Imposter phenomenon is probably a little more accurate term. That's the one mm-hmm. used by Dr. Clance, who's the one that coined um, the, the term way back when. What was your first like, toe in the water around, no, this is the thing I'm going to look at and study, and I have work to do here? So I had read someone's um, post about a book by Dr. Jennifer Hunt, Unlocking the Authentic Self. And when I read that book, I said, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. That's a lot of what I'm feeling and started really trying to think through like how, how can I have actionable tools available to me to combat what I'm feeling? I was doing it more for myself than with the intent of sharing it until a work group that I was in, they were looking for someone to host a virtual roundtable. I had never facilitated a large group like that, especially on a topic like this, but I knew that it was something I was very passionate about and had been reading about a ton. And so when a couple of people pointed toward me and they're like, hey, aren't you really interested in this? I said, yes, actually I am. And so that's where it started. I'm thinking, Kate, if you've never done something like facilitate a virtual roundtable, there's a, a wonderful irony that you're doing it on the subject of imposter syndrome. Did you have an opportunity to apply those tools to prepare for that? You talked about having actionable tools. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I always go back to when I feel like I'm faking it is the whole thought of would 10 out of 10 people agree with me? you know, when I questioned myself, that was actually something that helped to ground me because even one step ahead, 
still means I have something to share. That helped bring me back and um, give me the courage to go ahead and say, yeah, sure, I'll do this. What this reminded me of, so when we had our um, our prep call about you coming into the comfy chairs, we talked about John Acuff and his book Soundtracks. And it really is that, what are the things that I'm saying to myself instead of the horrible things? Instead of the inner critic, am I asking myself reasonable questions like, would 10 out of 10 people agree with this horrible thing I've just said about myself? So it's one of those tactics that I think we dismiss because it's so simple, but that's sort of the magic of it. And there's now research that's starting to back how effective it is, which is always really exciting. Absolutely. Can we go ahead and get into the tools? I want to hear more about those. And like, what have you created through your research? In researching and writing and building kind of a toolbox for myself and for other people, I have this six pillar framework. And so the one that I start always start with is the inner critic because it is the one that I do think causes the most damage the most quickly. It's one that if you don't try to change that voice, all the other tools are going to be less effective. That's the first chapter that I published on it as well, because that was the one that was the most important to me. Um, So some of the tools that I talk about when I talk about taming the inner critic are the, would 10 out of 10 people agree with me? Like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. I also love the idea of trying to change the way that you speak to emulate the way you would talk to somebody you care about. For me, what I want someone to talk to my daughter like that Oh, that is an excellent reframe for me. I also, it's going to sound really silly, but I am a big advocate for naming your inner critic. So for me to attribute that thought to somebody that I don't want to be around and then tell them to go Mm -hmm. is much more effective for me, at least, than to say, I'm not allowed to think this. Well, you know, you know, now I want to know what you named her. My inner critic is named Sam. Okay. Um, and it named after somebody that I took a lot of negative thoughts from mm-hmm. and had internalized the things that they felt instead of listening to my own voice. And so mm-hmm. it was really easy to use that as the name because I'm very willing to tell anyone named Sam to go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm making a face right now because I'm thinking about, you know, my Sam uh, in my life. And yeah, it would be, I know that a lot of the horrible things my inner critic says to me are because of that person from my childhood, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. because we take on, like if somebody criticizes us, well, it must be true. You know, it never crosses our mind that it's, for their own pleasure or to cause harm or just carelessness. But that's, I, that is, again, it's so simple, but how powerful is that? So I also love reframing the things the inner critic says in relation to my strengths. One of the ones that tends to come back to me is that voice going, 
you care too much, you get too close. When I take strengths assessments, empathy tends to be one of my highest strengths. It makes sense that for me, that empathy is going to form some kind of bond. Being able to accept that it's actually a strength That has been very, very freeing for me as a practitioner, because I think that we are trained into believing that we should be distanced enough Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't have those feelings. I like that we've landed on empathy at this stage because imagining another person's feeling, you know, there's the, what is it? The like cognitive, I can look at you and sort of understand. And then there's more kind of effective empathy if you will that's the oh I can put myself in your shoes it's not just that I sense your feeling it's that I'm there with you in the space that we're talking about we have to apply that to ourselves just like any conversation about emotional intelligence there's always a essentially you know a binary discussion of self and others you don't practice empathy for others unless you've done it for yourself it has to be grace yes it is so so important you're right um that self-compassion is extremely important and it's one of the things um that i talk about in my chapter on taming the inner critic yeah so you've mentioned chapter a couple of times and i want to make certain that i don't gloss over that um we want to celebrate with kate because she had a chapter published um, in a book that came out earlier this year, the title is Things I Wish I Knew. And then you also have a book coming out next year, right? Yes. And that's going to be Title is still working. Okay. <laughs> I haven't I haven't I haven't nailed that one down yet. The chapter that already came out is on Taming the Inner Critic, which is one big chunk of the framework that I use. But then the rest of that imposter syndrome framework is in the full book coming out probably the end of next April. Very exciting. One of the the things that we don't talk about enough when it comes to imposter feelings is a lot of what drives us to feel that way is how we handle praise and criticism. So if you're the type of person that dwells on the negative and doesn't really let the positive sink in, then it can be really helpful to have specific tools to make you hone in on the wins. Basically, I just started inventorying wins, good things, because I realized that if I'm always letting myself feel like that high from praise for just a second, and then going back to baseline, then I'm much more likely to let something negative draw me further down Mm -hmm. because I'm not letting myself really feel the good. It's harder for me to stay stuck in negative thoughts when I'm being so intentional with the positive ones. Can we back up a little bit? Can you talk a bit more about the response to praise and criticism? I tend to think of it like this. When something goes well, we always have that endorphin dopamine hit and then everyone's a little different as far as where it goes from there some people will stay on that high for a long time some people it takes longer um, for them to come back to their normal baseline trying to figure out 
what your responses are. Like how high is your high? How long do you stay there? On the flip side, when when something negative happens, depending on the person, sometimes you stay there a really long time or it takes you a really long time to recover back to where you started. And so I think self-awareness about all of that is really, really important because the more self-aware you are, the more likely it is that you can do something about it. I want to stick my oar in, if I may, because I think this is an important place to talk about the fact that when we receive anything we perceive as criticism, it poses a threat to us. We have an amygdala response to it. You, you mentioned endorphins. Well, on the other side, there's that uh, adrenaline dump that it can occur if if that criticism really like hits at my image of myself, it's coming from somebody whom I don't trust, you know, fill in the blanks for all of that. Endorphins are great, but adrenaline always demands a price of us. And I think that's some of why we tend to focus more on critical things because we're wired to keep ourselves safe. Absolutely. And I want to point out something that you said, which is it's the perception. Mm-hmm. of criticism, yep. the perception of danger. You don't have to be an actual danger for your amygdala to go haywire. The fact is, if I'm walking down the sidewalk and out of the corner of my eye, I see something and I think it's a snake, you better believe that I'm going to move because my amygdala is going to control my reaction first. So I, I think that what you're talking about is, am I aware of how I respond Do I understand how high I go from the endorphin or how low I go from my fear response? And by having that awareness, it starts to equip and empower you to pull it in and be able to actually assess what's going on as opposed to there's a stick and I think it's a snake. Right, exactly. Um And there's so many tools that you can use related to those emotions as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I've been doing for years now is I make myself do some kind of complex math in my head. My amygdala can't be in control of that process. And so it regrounds me. For those of us that don't like doing complex math, (laughs) what are some other... um, What are some other tactics you recommend? Anything that's going to require you to use your cognitive thinking brain, but not be super easy to you. So maybe it's how many colors I can remember in Spanish or anything that makes you think Mm -hmm. it's not just an easy thing. Yeah. Would 10 out of 10 people agree (laughs) with me is it's a great place to start because it's going to, you know, hit the brakes on on that fear thought and make you reframe. And we've talked about your writing and we're going to have the opportunity to read that book when it comes out next year. But I also had the chance, oh, was this this month or last? It was last month to participate in a, a challenge that you did. I will just ask you um, to tell us a little bit about that challenge. Most of my talking and teaching related to this topic has been within the healthcare space. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to see, you know, 
are there people outside healthcare that also relate to the things that I'm saying? And so that's where I came up with the idea of doing this challenge. I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing about what tools are helping them. Um, that is just as important to me um, as the writing is finding out how is this helping people? What can I share more of that's going to truly improve people's lives? I wanted to have a space that it didn't matter if you're in healthcare or not. You can just come and talk about these things because we all experience it to some degree. It starts with the taming the inner critic. You have to start there. Is that the first pillar? Is that actually it is. what it's called? Okay. Yes. And then what else? After taming the inner critic, the next pillar that I talk about is that metabolism of praise and criticism. So how we respond to those things. After we look at that, the next piece of the framework is related to avatars that tend to stand in our way. Most of us have some type of avatar that we align with. A lot of us have that perfectionist avatar that we feel like we need to live up to. Another one that's very common um, in the spaces that I tend to speak in is the expert avatar, which mm. basically is the avatar that tricks you into saying that unless I know everything, I don't know enough to share it. Another one of the avatars is the soloist, the person that feels like they have to do all the things. They have to do it by themselves. Or the natural genius, the person that thinks, oh, if I didn't get it right the first time, I'm not going to get it right. So I might as well not try. I just need to find a way to reframe that thought and remind myself that it's okay to fail at something new. Every failure is just a step towards success. Okay. Um, I'm fairly confident that this is a John Acuff quote. <laughs> My success is still in progress. I'll quote Ted Lasso here, a work in progress. <laughs> you know, the, it's, it's about the effort. It's about the journey, not necessarily about the being perfect. So you've given us four of the avatars so far, perfectionist, expert, soloist, and natural genius. What's the fifth one? The superhero, the person that feels like they have to be 100% in 100% of the areas of their life. Honestly, when I first started diving into talking and reading about imposter syndrome, that's the one that got me. Oh, I feel attacked by all of these, Kate. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So those are our first three pillars, taming the inner critic, the metabolism of praise and criticism, and then the avatars that stand in our way. It's number four. Taking a ground view approach. If you stay stuck on the ground, then you're never going to give yourself credit for your trajectory. We look around and it's like, it looks the same today as it did yesterday. Mm -hmm. It takes us breaking out of that and almost going out to this like bird's eye view to go, oh, mm -hmm. okay. So like that's today doesn't look special. But when I look at the last three years, that's significant. I am capable. Yeah. Can we talk for a minute about how 
absolutely revolutionary. The simple phrase, I am capable, can be in our lives. To give yourself permission to say it, but then believe it, you know, our capabilities are boundless when we say that. I am capable. I, I would add to that also um, the power in saying I'm enough. That's something that I have tried to start doing on a regular basis in front of my kids Good. and having them say, you know, I am intelligent. I am capable. I am enough. Well, I like the, you know, talking about the ground view because, well, one, I believe, um, you know, moderation in all things. So you don't want to always be at the 20,000 foot, but you also don't want to be at the ground all the time and making certain that you're toggling and finding which is appropriate for the moment is so important because sometimes you do need to take the high view and say, what's the big picture? What is everything going on? And the other days you have to be down in it. You talked about um, what is my baseline of happiness? Mm -hmm. Kind of a similar thing. What is my preferred um, vantage point? And am I finding the other one when I need it? So it's pillar five, Kate emotional self-regulation. Um, and we've kind of touched on some of the things that mm -hmm. I include there, things like understanding what your amygdala does and how to be aware of the hijacks. So things like finding some kind of cognitive task to do. I also cannot believe that it took me 35 years to understand the importance of labeling your emotions. I never knew that that was a thing until 2020 because it's really, really hard to process the emotion if you don't actually know what it is that you're feeling. Well, don't be too hard on yourself for that. If you think about it, you know, the, the initial common wisdom was that the prefrontal cortex finally stops growing around the age of 25. Some studies say as late as 30, right? So five years of going from, hey, I, I don't really have a, the ability to process consequences. I'm kind of always stuck in the moment to taking five years to learn, oh, I need to have perspective. I need to be able to think about how I'm responding things to things. I need to observe, name and manage what I feel, uh, five years is pretty fast, Kate. What you're talking about there is what I see as the work of being an intelligent human on this earth, is getting through that, okay, I'm not just an emotional creature. I have a responsibility to figure out how I'm navigating all of this. One other thing that I would also add is think about a model of help versus like a model based on disease. Mm. We tend to think of the negative. And so if I'm having a bout of anxiety or depression, I'm on this side. And so the goal is I just got to get to neutral versus the idea that there's this positive side a lot of times we don't even shoot for it because we don't even know that we could think that there's value in realizing that there's more. If we're always looking at it in terms of that negative view and only wanting to achieve middle ground, it's hard for us to ever experience the full range of our emotions. 
I love that the model of health versus the model of disease. And that's probably very accessible for me since we both have that healthcare experience. But I think for anyone, it's, am I focused just on being sick or have I gone to the other extreme? I focus on health, but the ultimate goal is not just to recover. It's ultimately to thrive. And that's what we're talking about here is the, it's not just to tame the inner critic so that there's no noise in your head, right? It's how do I do that and then go on to be my best self, to achieve the things that are in front of me, to be a great leader, parent, spouse, fill in the blank. Absolutely. All right. It's pillar six, ma'am. The saboteurs. There are nine saboteurs that are widely discussed when it comes to imposter syndrome. And all of them cause either a response or a lack thereof. For instance, like if you are dealing with the saboteur that is a controller, then you feel the need to step in, to do more. You know, if that's what the controller saboteur is telling me, then I have to figure out how to get to the root of that. I may feel some anxiety around not being in in control, but maybe that's actually going to help me hone my ability to be empathetic instead of critical. You know, the one that I probably struggle with the most um, is the pleaser. That voice in my head that says, If you say no, they're never going to ask you again. As a result, there have been times where I took on too much. I was so scared to say no. Being able to look back at that now and go, I need to learn to set boundaries and admit when I truly don't have the bandwidth for something. Also, you know, if I'm so worried about someone saying that, I no longer am going to get to do something because of me saying no. What's the best and what's the worst that can happen? Exactly. Like my counter question to that was, well, what's so awful if they don't ask again? I know there was a time where any opportunity that I had to do like field tests for continuing education and things Mm -hmm. like that, I would do. There was one year that I think I did like three of them in the span of like six months. It was a really heavy lift being able to back up and not let it become a situation where I told myself I should, but rather I asked myself, what's the best that happens if you don't, which is you have more room to breathe, more room Mm -hmm. to be happy with your family, less stress that you're taking into your house. And what's the worst? They don't ask again. And have I really lost anything? Yeah, we fall into that trap of thinking that there are only two answers to those questions. It's either yes or no. When we have not now, next time, maybe later, we, we have so many choices available to us other than saying yes or no when things come up. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's, um, that can be a hard one to come out and say, I tend to say yes all the time and I'm totally overwhelmed because of it. So thank you. Mm-hmm. What other um, lessons have you learned on this path? I think along the journey, as I have started 
really learning more about myself and how to stand up for myself, it has helped me realize that it's okay to speak up. There have definitely been times in my life where I didn't feel like it was okay for me to have a voice. I create a what not to do list because I, (laughs) part of the expert avatar in me, I tend to like to do all of the things and I do have to stop and step back (laughs) and (laughs) tell myself that it's okay to not want what someone else did. I, sometimes I have to write those things down and say, I don't have the bandwidth and I don't want to half-heartedly do it just for the sake of doing it. It's interesting, Kate. I, I've had I've had the same thought go through my head when you talked about finding your voice and the what not to do list. I am imagining a feeling of lightness. I am free to speak and then also free to, from pushing myself beating myself up to do all the things. And I just kept thinking that is so freeing what you're talking about right now. The study that you're doing, the work you're doing, your passion for all of this, the gift that it could give us is more freedom and lightness. I love that. I think lightness is such an accurate term for Mm -hmm. what it felt like when I finally started releasing so much of it or stopped holding on to the inner critic, I was finally able to give myself permission Mm -hmm. to not be perfect and permission to follow my passion. That feeling is the most light feeling that I've had in my adult life. Yeah. I I find myself talking a lot about giving yourself permission Um, as an adult, as a leader, when I've coached leaders, it is so radical to remember that we can give ourselves permission to do something or not do something, that we have permission to not believe the critic in our head, that we have permission to say no or not yet or maybe next time getting out of that that habit and the mindsets and behaviors that drive that is the thing that I think we need in the workplace right now so that we can be our best. And I totally agree with that. And I think one thing that, especially from the standpoint of someone who is a teacher, an educator, a leader, letting your learners or your employees know that there's safety there, that it's okay. That is one of the most important things that you can do. You know, um, I'm a huge fan of Amy Edmondson and Mm -hmm. all of her work in psychological safety. I truly am just blown away by what can happen when you allow there to be this equitable distribution of safety and accountability. Mm-hmm. Like if you have high levels of both, you are setting that person up for success, whether that's their learning environment or their work environment. If you give them both of those things, high accountability and also high psychological safety, it is game changing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and this is very much like when we talked about empathy, starting with yourself. One of the you know, stupid, simple secrets, you know, it's a dirty secret because it's so straightforward and logical um, of leadership is it you always have to start with yourself. It starts with me. Am I giving myself empathy? Am I giving myself grace? Have I granted myself permission to do these things? All of that so I can do the same for the people that look to me for leadership. And one of the things I believe bad leaders do is they forget the, you know, it starts with me, but you're next with their teams. They just, if they do any of it, they stop at themselves. The best leaders, and that's, you know, people who hold manager titles, people who have C-suite level positions, that's moms, that's church members, that's friends. You know, leading has so many different um, facets to it. But it starts with me. I eat my own cooking. I do all the things that I think I expect of you. And then I give that same grace, permission, and space to figure it out. And I help along the way. Beautifully said. Oh, I thank you. And also, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were really that easy? Yes. Because <laughs> all of that stuff is actually very hard because the theory is straightforward. And then you start adding people. And we're all just messy and broken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, we are a beautiful mess, aren't we? <laughs> Strong at the broken places. Absolutely horrible, selfish, and transcendent at the same time. Yes. All right. So, Kate, um, as we start to wrap up, what is the one thing that you would want people to hear from you? I want every single person to know that you are enough. You don't have to be anything other than you. We can all create new iterations and improvements in ourselves, but you're enough just the way you are. Really appreciate that, Kate, that it's, we can improve, we can reimagine and reinvent, but we're, we're starting with a thing that's wonderful. So you have a chapter in a book that was published this year, and I'll make certain there's a link for people to find things I wish I knew. And then your first um, book will be published in April. Really looking forward um, to seeing what your know, gifts and insights are there. Um, and if you're open to it, maybe after it comes out, we could have you back. I would love that. I am constantly trying to create content for anybody that this can help. Um, feel free to add me on LinkedIn or go to my website, um, which is theresilientfarmd.com. Um, on that site, you can see things like where I'm going to be speaking um, at upcoming events, but also there's a place that you can just uh, shoot me an email, get on my email list um, because there is a newsletter brewing. And also um, just if you want to talk about if there's a way that I can assist you, um, I'm always open for those conversations. I know you are. It's pretty amazing. 
you know, I, I don't want to label you um, as the superhero avatar, but you're pretty close, Kate. You have a lot going on and you're doing it all really well. I appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for putting all of this work out into the world. Thank you. I'll close with repeating one piece of Kate's insight. This work starts with taming your inner critic. Demonstrating kindness to yourself and replacing that critical voice, it's the first step in the path to overcoming imposter syndrome. My hope is that today's conversation has given you the tools you need to succeed. Thank you for joining me in the comfy chairs and many thanks to my guest, Kate. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating or review, or share it with others. You'll find Comfy Chairs updates and other thoughts on leadership and learning on Instagram at 123limited. That's O-N-E-2-3-L-T-D. Until next time.